you need to have trust and change, and the healthcare system has a lot of change to do. Welcome to Drexel's 10,000 Hours Podcast. Our goal is to mine the stories behind our region's innovators, inventors, and thought creators. We'll be talking to experts in subjects from fashion to neuroscience to find out what lies behind the passion for their work, the inspiration for their ideas, and the motivation for their creativity. I'm your host, Maurice Baynard. Kimberly Montgomery is an associate clinical professor of nursing and medicine at Drexel University's College of Nursing and Health Professions. As a clinician, Kim specialized in women's health, specifically HPV and cervical cancer prevention and treatment. Where'd you grow up? <laughs> uh, for nor- far northeast Philly. Mm-hmm. Went to um, Catholic high school. No, Catholic high school. Where'd you go? Nazareth Academy. Yeah. Yeah. What kind of a student were you as a teenager? I was a good student. I didn't have a choice. Like straight A. Straight A. Had yeah. to be. My dad was. Uh, my dad. My dad was a police officer and mm-hmm. didn't want me hanging on street corners. So my place was to make sure that I had a career for myself. What about your mom? My mom was a stay-at-home housewife who made sure that everything I had was sparkly clean and yeah. very ironed. How many brothers and sisters? I have one sister. So just two of you. Just two of us. Okay. So you guys have a close relationship. What kind of? Yeah, we're very were close. Um, we're six years apart. So there's a bit of a generation gap, a little bit there. Yeah. So, but yeah, we're pretty close. So I was with her yesterday. What kind of Catholic school girls were you? Were you? The kind that wore saddle shoes and, you know, blue blazer with your emblem being perfect or else you were sent home. <laughs> Absolutely. And, and and good, not like the smoking in the bathroom kind no, of? No, Never. I was a goody two-shoe. <laughs> Friends of the nuns? I worked for them, actually. When I was 16, I worked in their infirmary. Yeah. So that's kind of interesting. That's really right? interesting. So how'd you get into the infirmary? Um, like how that opportunity well, come, come about? I, I by then I kind of knew I wanted to be a nurse because I wanted to wear the hat, which we're obviously going to talk about. But so they put up. We used to bring cakes up to the infirmary, up to the Mother Catherine Drexel House. Believe it or not, every week for apropos. yeah, propose. Isn't that weird? <laughs> um, and, yeah, I didn't think about that till now. So then they were asking for you know people who wanted to be assistants to help out, and that's really where I started. Can you think about a time before then? when you realized that you really wanted to help people? So my mom tells me that when I was a child, including the petals on the flower that would fall off, I've always wanted to put things back together and to fix things. So I think really that is where it started. Yeah. Yeah. Talk to me about the hat. The hat. So everybody always asks me, and it's nurses, the year of the nurse, right? And Nurses Week is coming in May, and people always ask me, so how did you know? When did you know you wanted to be a nurse? What was your first memory? Who did you idolize? And I really don't have a good story about somebody in my family who was a nurse or, you know, somebody that I knew that that's how I wanted to grow up after that person, you know, because she was a nurse or he was a nurse. But it really was that my mother was a stay-at-home mom who really liked General Hospital. So every day that was part of her routine as she ironed. The and Luke I, and Laura show. Well, right. So one of the characters on that show who still was on the show, um, the last I checked, I don't even know if it runs anymore, but she um, had this beautiful white hat and very starched white outfit, uniform. And my mother used to iron all the time. So I really loved that. And I wanted to be whatever it was to be that made me 
able to wear that hat. It occurred to me that there were also like really interesting hats on nuns at the time. Didn't it wasn't like you, white and stark. That's true. So you it didn't was want to grow up to be a, like a flying nun. No. It was always always a nurse because of the white white uniform. Right. Well, from for, right, but for me, I went to Catholic school my entire life, so I was taught by nuns. So to me, that was probably normal. It wasn't something that it wasn't was, aspirational. Yeah. Well, it was normal. <laughs> like it was a like a regular white yeah. outfit. <laughs> this was white, clean, great hat. And then when I graduated college, nurses don't wear caps anymore. So I bought one anyway. And I had my pictures taken That's with really the hat. Funny. Yes, it still do hangs still, in my mother's home. Do you still home. have that? Yes, still have I, the hat. No, but I have the picture. So where did you go to college, and what did you major in as a college? So I went to Holy Family mm-hmm. for the first two years, majored in nursing, and then I transferred to Thomas Jefferson University, and I finished out my BSN the last yeah. two years. Then I went to the University of Pennsylvania, and I got my MSN, and I became a certified women's health nurse practitioner. And then I went to Drexel University, and I got my DNP. So when I uh, think about doctors and maybe the cases that sit with them, it's always about the one that got away, the person who didn't survive or the procedure that didn't work out. But when I think about nurses, it's always about the person who recovered and went home. For me, it's both. So for the person who recovered and went home, you made that world a difference to that person, right? So you've helped them recover. You've helped them through something very difficult. But for the one who didn't work out so well or somebody that you lose, in my opinion, as a nurse, you didn't lose. You know, it's a privilege, as, you know, I tell my son who's a nurse, it's a privilege to help somebody into the world. Mm. It's a privilege to help them conquer whatever it is that they need to, illnesses, problems in their lives. But the greatest privilege is to help them leave the world with dignity. So I think that's, you know, it's across the lifespan of a nurse. So it's not about the one who you lost. It's sad. It's yeah. horrible. We've all had it. It's not fun. But it, you have to look at it as the big picture. Do you have a patient that you'll never forget? Do you have yes. a story? I do. Do you want to share it? Sure. Um, so I worked labor and delivery. It was a happy place to work, you know, and I was pretty new. Um, and when you're new as a nurse, you're really worried about just making sure you don't kill anybody, right? Right. Happy, sad. That's the goal. You just want to go to work right. and make sure just that can't come home. you know, yeah, <laughs> that you come home and that right. that patient was okay. Because you really, you, no matter how great your schooling is, every experience is different, right? So I had a patient who came into labor and delivery, and um, her baby was diagnosed with a cardiac defect. And the cardiac defect could have gone mild to severe, but they couldn't diagnose how bad it was going to be until the baby was delivered. Right. So the baby came out and crying and pink, and it was great. So we all thought everything was okay. And within 30 seconds, wow. it started to get pretty blue, hmm. transported right to the NICU, and had some really difficult days. And I checked on the baby a lot. I worked night shift, um, checked on the baby a lot, um, baby head up and down. And then I got a call when I came in saying, Kim, they need you in the NICU. And I'm thinking, the NICU? I don't do the baby part of this. Please don't pull me there. (laughs) Not expecting that I was going to the NICU for what I was going for. So I went up to the NICU and they said the family felt that you were here and brought their daughter into the world. They'd like you to be there with them when Mm. she leaves. And that's a story that still, you know, makes me a little teary eyed. And um, I share that all the time. And I still do keep in touch with with mom and dad. Um, Yeah. 
So you mentioned you did women's health. That that's yeah. your area of expertise. It's my thing. So I mean, there's, we could talk about that all day. Yeah. Like we could ask, how do you think the way in which women are focused on in healthcare differs from men, both locally and globally? Let's start there. What are the issues? What are the sort of global? Well, it was yesterday was International Women's Day. Yes. So from your lens. Um, what are the things that around women's health that we are still ignoring or still needs um, the attention, both of the world and the medical community? All of it. <laughs> Everything. Yes. We don't We're understand not anything yet. about women. Well, well, we do understand a lot about women. <laughs> okay. And now that women have a seat at the table and they're you know, um, being recognized for being beautiful, smart, um, every, sassy, yeah. everything that they are recognized for um, – we're starting to learn to learn a lot more. I mean, in your lens, has has women's health improved over the last ten years? Depends and, on where you are. Do you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And what is it? Have you seen things and movements that give you a lot of hope? And are there things that seem to move slower than you'd like? I think it's a little bit of a mixed bag. So mm -hmm. we didn't pay attention to women and heart disease. So now we have Heart Disease and Women's Month. So, you know, mammograms that aren't being done, um, cervical cancer screenings that aren't being done, education about sexually transmitted diseases and how to prevent them not being done. So we're not doing our job as good as that, as good as, we're not doing our job as well as we could. Mm -hmm. We're getting there, but we're not there yet. If you had to grade the way in which women are, um, attended to by the health professions just locally here in Philadelphia, what grade would you give it? It depends on the location. So it's really, um, if you have insurance mm. and you can afford to see somebody, I think you get fabulous care. Yeah. I do think we have some wonderful, wonderful clinics for people who, who don't have great insurance, but it's educating the women to go to the clinics and to go and get care and feel comfortable about yeah. going there. And that we're not there yet in Philadelphia. We're just not there. What major uh, problem are you working on right now? What are you passionate about right now that you're trying to move the needle on? Cervical cancer screening. Mm -hmm. um, women don't go in for pap smears for many reasons. Um, we're better here than they are in third world countries, which yeah. I've studied previously, but um, there's a fear to go in to be screened. A lot of people don't even know what a pap smear is. They think it's screening for cervical cancer, some which it is, but some people also think it's sexually transmitted disease testing. Some people think it's ovarian screening, and they're not educated. And in fact, when they come out of offices, they still don't know they had a pap smear and they don't know what we're screening for. So, and then there's pregnancy reduction or um, prenatal care, which mm. is another issue, which is a big issue um, across the country, and infant and maternal mortality. So it seems a, like both of those um, <clears throat> lie in communicating better to the general public. So what is it that we're doing wrong? What is, what is the message that we're not getting out? And what are the organs of communication that we're not utilizing? That's a good question. Um, I think that the education piece, when women come into visits, whether it's primary care, we don't have enough time. Mm. You know, we the insurance company doesn't give us enough time to spend with people. So you have to do all your education while you're taking a history, doing your assessment, you know, um, 
uh, doing an examination and then trying to make a plan for a patient. And if you only have a little bit of time to do that, it's very difficult to get all the teaching in. So I'm trying to teach while I'm while I'm doing my examinations. So it's it's about finding ways to get, as you said, the message out, right. um, making it easy, convenient. We work. Women are now working. They're not all stay-at-home moms. So right. how do you bring your child to daycare and go to work and try to get an office visit in? Or, you know, if your family comes first or if you have only so much to go around that your family comes first, we as women are usually leaving ourselves mm-hmm. to last. So right? I wonder, like, how much the way in which people have historically interacted with the medical community affects the way they feel about taking control or being part of that conversation. So I'm African-American. I think there's a lot of skepticism around the medical community, either justified or not justified. People go, if I go to the hospital, they are going to do something to me mm-hmm. and I'm going to end up dead. And I think an argument could be made for women um, who've been misdiagnosed or underserved sort of as a group. To feel that, you know, talking to medical professionals at the point of contact deserves some skepticism. Correct. How do we get over that? We have to keep trying. You know, uh, change is difficult, but you Mm -hmm. can't get anywhere without change. And reaching out and finding out what your needs are. If I if I reached out to you or any any community and said, so tell me what you need. How can I help you? What would make you seek care? And you talk to me. I have to get your trust, and you'd have to trust me no matter who you are, whether you're from any community. And once you gain trust, then it's a slow change over time. You're not going to walk into a place that you're uncomfortable with tomorrow and say, I'm going to do this. It's just not going to happen. You need to have trust and change, and the healthcare system has a lot of change to do, a lot of change to do. And it's not going to happen over the next year maybe the next five years. But I think that if professional teams and healthcare teams really think about the need of the patient and having the patient at the center and asking you what you need, if I ask you instead of tell you, and I say to you, so how do you feel about that? What do you think about that? And you would be like, well, this works for me or this doesn't work for me, and I'm listening to you and I hear you, that's going to make you trust me a little bit more. Um and, and I think nurses do a great job of listening um, and bringing that message back to the team. Um, so I do think it's about listening and change and trust. But change is hard. Change is really hard. Let's just talk about some of the challenges in women's health locally. What would you say are the top, the leading two or three issues? Well, women are still dying in childbirth. Mm-hmm. Um Women still have high rate of diseases such as diabetes, heart disease, and we're still getting cancer. And we're not going in for screenings. What keeps people from um, going in from sc- for screenings? Although there seems to be a huge like public uh, messaging that you should be screened, should be screened, sc- should be screened. Well, I think that's, that goes back to what we talked about before. One is fear. People are afraid to find out. You I mean, you want to know, but you do, don't want to know. You do and don't want to know. Yeah, you want to know, but you don't want to know. And when you and say cancers, are we talking breast cancer, cervical cancer? All of them. The whole All of them. We're still shebang. dying. We're still dying. Yeah. Um, we're not dying at the rates that we previously did. Um, we have vaccines, but you have to be comfortable to go get a vaccine or to get your child vaccinated. Um we have mammograms that are improving. We have access to mammograms where we have mo- mobile units that will come to your uh, community. 
but people are afraid to know. There are people who have not seen a provider in 15, 20, 30 years, or they've only seen a women's health provider to have childbirth and have never gone in their 70, 80 years old because they're afraid to know. Then there's the education of what they're getting when they go in. So what questions do I need to ask? How, you know, um, I'm afraid to talk to somebody. I'm afraid to give them history. I'm just afraid of what they're going to tell me. Mm-hmm. So there's a fear. Um, there's an ed- education issue. Um, and then there's life. So there's mm-hmm. I work full time. I cook and I clean. Yeah. I, I drive my kids to where they need to go all day. And this is men and women, by the way. I don't have time for myself. And the only yeah. appointments I can get are six months from now. And when I make an appointment and I plan to go in, something happens at home and I have to cancel my appointment. And then I can't get another appointment for six years. And you know what? I've just given up. Yeah. In six months. I'm sorry. Totally for six months. And I I just give up. I've tried to get in. They can't fit me in. Or when I go in, I have to wait two hours. And I have to wait two hours and I have to pick my kid up from school. So there's lots of. And then there's, you know, how much will your insurance pay for? What is your copay? Absolutely. And if it comes to dinner on the table versus a copay, right. there's not really a decision there, right? And then there's follow-up, and follow-up costs money as well. Yeah. So you mentioned infant mortality, and I think most people would find it shocking in the sixth largest city in America or here in the middle of the United States that infant mortality was high. What are some of the contributing factors that that's a, that's the case. So it's care. It's all mm. about care. So if you um, get pregnant and there's um, you don't go in for care and there or you don't continue your care for whatever reason, um, the diagnosis on a fetus or a baby is not made, and mm. then the baby's delivered, and there could be lots of different um, reasons. Lots of different diseases, lots of different conditions that require follow-up. Yeah. And if they don't, if you don't know about it, that doesn't mean that every baby who comes out, we know that there's, they're not, everybody's not Absolutely. perfect. Absolutely. Um, but then there's also follow-up. And all of that follow-up on a baby, you know, um, education about SIDS, ed- education about um, what you put in a crib and what you don't put in a crib and yeah. what allergies and immunizations and all things that, that happen. And if there's the education's not there and the care's not there, we don't have great outcomes. Hmm. What do we need to do to improve that? Education like and get if it, people Like one in, thing that we could do. Access to care, period. Access to care. Make it easy for you to come and see me. Make it easy for you to come and talk to me. Make it easy for your life that you can come in, whether it's your workplace, your home environment, your community center. It can be in a shopping center, for yeah. but access to care. And a lot of women include third world countries, but in the United States, here in Pennsylvania, in Philadelphia, they don't have great access to care. It feels to me like you like there should be a nursing station in every supermarket. Every corner. <laughs> yeah, should be bumping into nurses everywhere. Well, they're trying to do that with urgent care. Yeah. But that comes at <laughs> a cost. They're almost right? on every corner. Yeah, but that comes with a cost, <laughs> That's right? That's absolutely right. You can, I just saw on TV that you can walk into a, a pharmacy, a certain pharmacy chain, and you can see a nurse practitioner, yes. and you can get a prescription and take it right to the counter, and they'll even get the medical, medical equipment that you need. Yeah. But that costs money. Absolutely. It's not free. Right. None of it's free. So access to care. We're not doing a great job. 
So just to follow up, I would like to um, ask you a question about women's health care specifically and those things that are cost prohibitive and how you see this nexus of um, the cost that it takes to do procedures or be screened and how that relates to what access women do or do not have to the things that are vital. So let's just talk about birth control. Let's just talk about birth control. Birth control. So I believe that um, re- reproduction, reproductive rights is a human right. Mm-hmm. And there are people pro-choice. We can get into that whole discussion, you know. Um, mm-hmm. But birth control option for a woman, in order to get a prescription for birth control, you have to see a provider. So mm-hmm. if you don't have insurance, that limits what, what you do. Right. And then here's cost of birth control. So depending on what you can and cannot do. Some, for medical reasons, can do certain types of birth control and... And then there's medical history, allergies, lots of things. So then when you settle on the birth control that is right for you, for many reasons, you have to go and pay for your birth control, which is cost prohibitive for many women in any form. This might seem like a silly question, but, you know, in my entire life, I've never thought about birth control or its cost. So if I, if I were a woman and I were 18 years old and I wanted birth control... Like, how much would that cost? Depends on the kind that you'd want. So birth control pills can range up to $70 a pack. Yeah, that seems like a lot of money. It is a lot of money. For a month's worth of something. Right, one month. Right. And if you're 18 years old and you don't have a job, or you're trying to feed a child that you might have at the age of 18, or 27, or 30. So what would, in your mind... How should we change the way in which money is a hindrance to care? What would you like to see? Well, then we're getting political. As and health, and as right health, now, I would, health, uh, you know, I'm a ter- type of person who gives every, would like to ever give everything out for free, and I understand well, it's a business, go. and you can't as, do that. As health czar, right? <laughs> as, as health czar, <laughs> I would be able to give women access to care for free, and I would give them access to follow up for free, and I would give them access to whatever they need for free. I would actually do that for anybody, not just women. Um, but of course, world is a business model, and. We we have to pay for things, and that's why we work, right? And the cost of things are very high for so many reasons. Um, and I think getting at that problem, why is the cost for everything so high? Which, as a nurse, I'm, I can't fix that problem. Right. I mean, this is a really interesting question. Is that a political question, or is that just societal will? Not everything that costs money um is passed on to the consumer. For example, public education is free and mm-hmm. everyone gets to go to public school. Um, and whether you argue about the quality or not, it's free to everyone because we've made sort of a collective idea. This is super important and everybody should get to do it. And so we underwrite it. And so public education is free, but in order to go to school, you have to have shoes and you yeah, have to have clothing and you have true. to shower. All of that's true. And not everybody has that. That's right. Yeah. Accessibility, right? There's women and children and that live in shelters, and they can't get to school. They can't even get to a school. Right. There's transportation. So it's not about it just being a free right. There's lots of variables that you have mm. to think about. It would be great if we can just send all of our kids to school and just go. But 
that's not really the way the world works, right? But we're agreed that birth control should be free. I believe birth control should be okay. free. There's a lot of people who will definitely disagree with me, but I do believe that birth control should be free. I think prenatal care should also be free. Making sure that you're healthy and, and see a provider and making sure that everything's going okay and answering all your questions about what you can and cannot do that will give you the best possible outcome for you and the child should be free, but it's not. <laughs> Dr. Kim Montgomery, <laughs> thank you for being on the 10,000 Hours. Thank you for having me. Drexel's 10,000 Hour Podcast is hosted by me, Maurice Baynard. Our producers are Sean Fitzpatrick and Nathan Bell. Drexel's 10,000 Hours Podcast is powered by Drexel University Online. <laughs>